good morning, good evening, wherever you are and whatever you are doing. Thanks for inviting us to join you. Matthew Grant here. And if this is your first time, then hello. I am delighted you find us. And to everyone else, well, welcome back. Now, I'll be switching off my mic in a moment and Robin Mertens picks up the conversation today with Nadia Al-Salim, founder and CEO of Gaia. Now, Gaia has been one of the big stories here in the insurance world in London for the last couple of years. And like many of the most successful entrepreneurs, Nadia has built the business to solve a problem that he had experienced himself. You'll hear a lot about the insurance protection gap these days, finding solutions for when traditional insurance hasn't worked. Gaia is one example of a company solving the insurance gap, in this case, providing coverage for the failure of IVF treatment. I'll let Robin and Nadia pick up the story from here. So I'm with Nada El Salim. He's the uh, founder of Gaia and the CEO. Nada, welcome. Thank you for having me. I know from our discussions before that you're a Palestinian, and I think I can safely say you're the first person of Palestinian origin that we've had on the podcast. What was it like growing up, and how did you end up in the UK? First, it's such a great honor to be the first Palestinian. I did certainly hope I'm not the last. So do I. I actually grew up as a Palestinian in Beirut. Um, and Lebanon, which actually makes matters a little bit more complicated. My grandparents, like many millions of Palestinians, were forced out of their home in 1948 and migrated north to Lebanon as refugees. So I grew up there, which is essentially an identity crisis because in Lebanon, Lebanon was suffering from a civil war and you always been labeled as an outsider and hence you always felt that you needed to do a little bit more in order to be fully fitted in society and accepted. In many ways, it's helped shape many attributes that have positively contributed to bettering my odds in, in life, namely resilience and adaptability. And it's something that carries forward. And if you add a little bit of that insecure immigrant overachiever into, into the mix, and voila, you end up hosting the first Palestinian on the podcast. I really like that because, you know, without getting too philosophical about this, we know that in the UK, we benefit massively from our ability to attract talent like you. Why did you choose the UK? Choose a, is, a, is a luxury term. So <laughs> it's a little bit easy journey. All I had to do was, was sell my soul to the devil or, or the highest bidder. It's actually a job in investment banking that was my passport to social mobility and what you call economic migration, really. And that's how I landed here. Citigroup at the time was starting an emerging markets business. And they had this brilliant idea that they wanted to staff it locally from people from the regions that they wanted to serve. So they went around the, the Middle East and they hired a small group of analysts in the investment on the global investment banking program. And I was luckily one of them. And I bizarrely ended up in Karachi, Pakistan as my first assignment. What happens afterwards is I spent three years on a global rotation program with City in different parts of the business, a couple of countries. Before I joined Goldman, and for the better part of nine to 10 years, I mainly ended up covering emerging markets for Goldman whilst being based in London which is now a very, very long time, but we do call home now. And it really is that job that gave me the opportunity to come here and settle here and, and make this home. Well, we all know Goldman as an employer that pays vast amounts of money, and I hope he paid you vast amounts of money. But that makes the next question all the more curious, which is why did you give up vast amounts of money at Goldman Sachs? I always say my decision to start Gaia was A, accidental, B, it was more of a natural conclusion of events. I had lived a terrible experience firsthand that led to a crystal clear understanding of the pain points. And I've always thought that I carried an invaluable insight being a patient. 
And even today, I often meet founders and the light bulb moment always for me clicks when I think that it's incredibly valuable when they have an insight that it's actually not obvious. And when you see them talk about it, you're like, uh huh, that makes a lot of sense. That's the hallmark of you've accidentally built something or you've planned to build something that ended up being an elegant solution to a problem that you had a first hand understanding of, of its pain points. To be very honest, also for a lot of the people that are in a similar, in a similar stance in their life, like the, the risk reward math of starting a company, starting a startup never really adds up, right? So if you want to look at it rationally, it almost never stacks up. But I always say, maybe if you look at it on an optimism-adjusted opportunity, it always makes sense. Because you do know and you understand the depth and the scale of the problem that you're solving. Have you told us it was born out of a personal experience? Tell us how Gaia sorts that problem out. My wife and I wanted to start having a baby. And the trip that ensued a little bit less straightforward than what we probed. We went down an IVF rabbit hole. Essentially, we've done five failed rounds. We won the Dutch and Chastel on the fifth, but we've done four failed rounds in three clinics in two countries. And we paid 50,000 pounds and a lot of emotional and physical pain that was endured throughout the process. A baby showed up and we're very fortunate because there was a happy ending to that story. But your sort of aha moment really is understanding how many people can actually go to that fifth round and how many people you can ask to spare 50,000 pounds for something that they have so much low visibility on. And then you'll find that number to be not more than two to three percent of the people that go through treatment. So Gaia was a direct answer to the fact that everyone should really have the best chance of starting a family, regardless of their financial situation in life. We were very fortunate to be able to afford to go to fifth. Many, many, many people are not. And back to the definition of what is a long-term optimistic version of this. If you do manage to create a reality where like you say my long-term optimistic vision is that anyone who wants a family can try and money is not going to stand as an obstacle to do so. I think it's an incredible achievement for all of us at Gaia. And today we started something what I call a very functional. We are aiming to remove the financial barriers to accessing fertility treatment and one type of fertility treatment. And what we want to do is we want to move a little bit further and try to understand what is that family building journey for people like me, for the many like me, but more importantly, for the people that are even not in the system today. Because if you look at the people who need treatment versus the people who actually end up accessing treatment, the majority is outside. They're, they're not going through treatment. And we wanted to solve it to the masses before this becomes something that people consume on a more regular basis. And the first time you told me that story, I was completely consumed by it and I remain as consumed by it today as I, as I was then. That could easily have been a passion project. It could easily have been something that you set about campaigning for. But you saw it as a business. When did you turn your project or your campaign into a business? It was a very organic process that like the whole evolution from like an idea to an actual business, right? And the thesis that remains the same, like the option to have a child is a fundamental right and should be afforded to all humans. And if you look at the underlying demand, the fertility treatment demand has never been higher due to biological, demographic, societal reasons, resulting in a growing and a diverse range of people that exist today for starting to plan their families. From a demand side, you have an acute need in a large and a growing market, and that's usually a fantastic place to start. And on the supply side, you have essentially two movers, which is there is either a public funding available for that component of healthcare, or there's usually the insurer that puts pressure on the healthcare provider in order to normalize the access, and none of them exist. And if you move to the consumer pain point, which is the hopeful parents that want to start that journey, their pain points mainly revolves around access and the patient experience. Access is 
nearly non-existent because less than 2% of people access treatment. And the patient experience is horrible. And the process of it becoming a business or going down on a business model was to say, there is no point improving the patient experience, which is terrible, but there is no point in improving the patient experience if access remains exclusive or restricted. So let's leave the patient experience because if we get more numbers through the process, the patient experience will redesign itself around the many people that are now becoming that part of the access solution. But the bigger gap was on the people that are still priced out. The most deliberate decision at Gaia was to solve the money. How do you build an insurance relationship with a patient, which we call a member, where the entry wedge to that relationship is money? Because I'm genuinely not interested in improving the experience before I open the gates to that experience. And that is the process by which this became a business because it, we, we first decision that we had to make is to focus on what is the key pain point? What is the focal and key pain point that we're going to focus all of our energy to find a solution for? And we decided that access is the most meaningful. So you credited MGA and a product. What does that product uh, ensure your customers against? The product is very simple. It's, it's our insurance model. It's essentially a completely new way to pay for care. Namely, we have treatments for now. What happens is that at the point of care, which is the equivalent at the point of sale, which is a clinic in the UK, we take personal data from the patients that are undergoing treatments, and we use that data in order to predict how likely you are to have a child. And then we estimate that probability, and we insure you against the risk of failure. For that, you pay a premium. Typically, it's a fraction of the cost of a single cycle. If you end up not having a live birth in the rounds that we've predicted, or if you end up not having a child in the rounds that we've predicted, you pay nothing. If you do have a child, you pay back the cost of the treatment that you've incurred in monthly installments. So essentially, what you're doing is you're allowing prospective parents to pursue the treatment without financial unknown because you're underwriting the downside risk of how much they're ever going to pay. And we also offer a ton of support throughout the journey in order to realize that the emotional pain part of it, which comes in the form of therapy sessions, concierge and access to embryologists and other services that we wrap that financial transaction in order to map with the journey through fertility treatments. It's genius. That was three years ago and you are now up and running. You raised some meaningful amounts of money. Tell us where you've got to right now. If I, if I think about your model, it seems to me that you have two you have a consumer model and you sell straight to the consumer and you have a, um, effectively a B2B model where you sell your products through the clinics. But let's just deal with the first of those. How is your product engagement with the clinicians going? The short answer is better than expected. The long answer is we've created a product that is very hard to do in insurance from one aspect, which is perfectly aligning interests. Because if you really think about the product, we have three parties in the product. You have the insured, which is the patient, what we call the member. We have the insurer, which is essentially Gaia. And you have the provider, which is essentially the clinic. For the very first time in insurance, one thing happened. The three of us want identical outcome. We all want a baby. Gaia wants a baby because that means there's essentially no claim. The member does not want a Gaia product, actually wants a baby. And the clinic wants that because that reinforces their success rate, which helps them acquire the next patient and the next patient and the next patient. We've created a, for the first time, a product where like the three people want identical outcome. A lot of people that come to a clinic, 50% of them do not proceed with treatment because of cost. We will provide a solution for them. And of the people that start the treatment and drop out because of cost, they'll have, continue, they'll have assurance over continuity and we provide a solution for them. 
And I think those sort of value proposition to the clinic made it very clear that it's not a matter if they adopt us, it's a matter of how quickly they can adopt us. And in a very short period of time, we now cover about 40% of the UK market in terms of clinic coverage, as in who is a partner of Gaia. Direct to the consumer is an interesting one because I think we built that by mistake. I'm going to tell you a story. We, we were onboarding an early member who was a patient at a clinic in Liverpool. And we had to turn down that member because the clinic was not on our network yet. So I personally called the lady and I told her so. And the next morning she offered to drive to the clinic herself the next day and deliver any marketing material we wish on our behalf that helps our case with the clinic in order to accelerate the adoption. Now tell me any insurance consumer business that you know that can do that. That tells you what sort of consumer engagement we have, what sort of virality is built in the product that actually helps people to conceive. When people love the product and its value prop shines in real time, what happens is they themselves build a consumer business for you because they just won't stop talking about it to their friends, to their families, to their colleagues. And if you look at the, much of the demand that's happening from a consumer perspective, I think we underestimated the strength of the underlying community that we're serving, which is the trying to conceive community. Those are hopeful parents who have shared pain points. And to the extent that those guys find a solution that they're going to adopt it, they're going to shout from the rooftops to help the next couple on the journey, so on and so forth. And now it's something that we're extremely, extremely focused on. And you'll see in the upcoming months, sort of the business taking more of a consumer facing DNA. Hi there, I'm Tara, one of the research analysts at Instech. Climate change is having a growing impact on extreme weather, leaving insurers with a greater need than ever to understand the combined risk of hurricanes and floods. Join Instech, Reask, and Fathom for a live event in London on the 1st of November to review the key drivers of change, how insurers are taking account of this for underwriting and portfolio management and the climate analytics and data that are available to support them. The event is free to Instech members, and you can register online at instech.co forward slash events. You did a great job at recognizing the need for the product and designing it, but ultimately you could go to market until you had some insurance capacity to put behind it. You've now got capacity. Tell us who from, and then and there's a bit about the kind of journey from idea to being up and running and fully backed by the insurance industry. I always say that the fact that we built an insurance product without insurance expertise had helped us a lot because we weren't governed or even, or even restricted by antiquated thinking on how to build products. The industry biggest problem, it actually has a similar problem to fertility treatment. It actually has an accessibility problem. The process wasn't straightforward for us because it was very hard to navigate who does what to whom and what part of the value chain. And if you're not from the industry, and I think I said this in an event of yours one time, it genuinely takes six months to kind of figure out what is a wholesale broker, what is a retail broker. And all you need to know is like, who's on the risk and who's telling the risk. And that took a long period of time for us to kind of figure out. The other thing that I think we've done on the, on the insurance side is we've done the heavy lifting on the modeling side of the risk before we sat with an insurer. So when we sat with the insurer, we had a million data points of every single IVF treatment that goes back to the early 90s of every single woman in this country who underwent IVF. And we said, listen, we got a way where we know how to predict the live birth based on these set of parameters with a margin of error. 
And by the way, if we can do that in a very similar fashion to predicting any kind of risk, we can underwrite it. If we can underwrite it, we can price it. If we can price it, we think we want to build a brand to set. All we want is a little bit more open mind because this product has not been done before. Our lucky break came in the form of Lloyd's Lab, to be honest. It was a chance meeting with Freddie McNamara, who's the, who's the CEO and founder of Cover, who I was complaining to about the lack of seriousness of the people that we're talking to and everybody's sort of wasting our time, but we just can't get any traction. And he actually asked me to check Lloyd's Lab, which I have never heard of at the time. And we went and we applied and we got in on a wild card at the time because there was no category for us. And I think that helped two things. It helped giving us access to a large group of people in a structured format. And two, the people that were signing up to the lab were by definition serious about considering product and alternatives and distribution and capacity, which sort of made it a very good audience. From that, I think also the second level was understanding who are the real partners. And I really want to do a shout out here to the people that helped the most, which are Beasley, Chaucer, and Atrium, and namely, namely Joyce and Haley from Beasley and Chaucer, who we came to them very early. And I think the approach differed from all the other insurers because it was very open to genuinely trying to understand what the product is and what the product should be and what the product could be. And we shared with them in a very transparent way. And they will tell us what would work, what would doesn't work, what, what can sell, what can't sell internally, externally, compliance, conduct, and all these like blind spots for us. And the fact that we've done it in such an open and collaborative manner helped a lot because essentially you had a bunch of people around the table that want the same objective. They wanted this product to be off the ground and that brought everybody to be focused together. Well, I think you've picked three companies we're very pleased to have as members and as innovative and curious and open-minded as anybody uh, in our market. So well done them and well done you. Please tell me, how many times in the course of doing this did you walk into a meeting and somebody said, we can't ensure this without a three to five year loss record because we've never done this before. We can't enter into a new product without any historical data. Did, did you get that? Weekly for eight months. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we did. We did. We, did. we did get a lot of that. I think people would get naturally very excited about the product. And quite frankly, then they'll get scared because it's one thing to be excited because the proposition actually makes like mathematical sense. And they really love the human impact of it, as in it's a measurable impact that has a component of social good. But then they realize that it is a lot of work because this has never been done again. And someone down the chain needs to take that risk. And what I discovered about the insurance industry is that everybody's very good in passing on the risk. No one's very good in actually taking it. And that would cause a little bit of those conversations to be difficult until we found our feet and we know how to position this a little bit better. And we found good partners. And I think the rest got a little bit easier from that. But we were, I think we were dead on alive at the same time for a lot of years in that year. Now that you understand how the insurance market works and now you know where to find good partners, you must have plans for other products and other things. Firstly, any plans to take what you've done in the UK to other parts of the world with the IVF treatment? For sure. I think our next biggest market is the US. It's a similar pain point on the consumer side, i.e. a lot of hopeful parents that have nonlinear path to becoming parents. And hence, fertility treatments is a solution, but they're priced out because they're very expensive. And if we think the UK is expensive, multiply that by a factor of 10, and you'll have sort of the US figures. It's very similar to the UK. 75% of, of those treatments are paid out of pocket. So it's still a very acute consumer pain point financially. And cost remains the number one concern. 
but you have much more volume, you have much more depth, and you have much more spend. So we're going to take everything that we've done in the UK and do it in the US. And we're going to launch, hopefully, soonish, a pilot that will allow us to replicate some of the UK clinic success, if I may call it that, with the, with the US counterparty. And then products, sir? There are other aspects of family life that you might uh, seek to address. Any thoughts around that? We want to be the first brand or service for family building. There is no place where men and women go to start a family. It's a space that's super high in emotion, very high in spend, very high in engagement, but it's devoid from meaningful information or access. So I think that this becomes less about the products, more about what problem are we trying to solve for what generation of upcoming families. And we wanted essentially to build almost like a new kind of an insurance company that treats reproductive health, not as an annexation, but as a core component of your common healthcare. And we want it to be the company that sits in the intersection of money and health. And the premise to activate that is how we switch planning for family from reactive to proactive. And the questions that we want to answer along that product suite is really quite honestly, very simple. What information do I have that allow me to access what solution in order to achieve more optionality on my reproductive health. And if you think about it from a product suite perspective, it's today we sell a product to those who have been identified that they have a problem at the point of care. We wanted to come a little bit early in the journey and say, one in six of us will have a problem of sort. Those problems need action. The action needs two things, information and money. And if we sit at the, at the intersection of those two and we innovate the products and the service that allow you to take charge of optionality, early in life where you don't need it and we become what you call like a planning annuity type business, right? Come like how you plan your pension, how you plan your life insurance, how you plan what is going to happen when it comes to family formation, realizing that the family structure is changing and the use cases are not straightforward as they used to be. These are big ambitions, both geographically and um, sort of philosophically and the way in which you're seeking to change insurance. What do you need I mean, is this now, you go out and raise lots more money, you know, what, what, more resource. What's going to take you from where you are now to be able to realize some of this? On money, I got this advice early days from Mark Evans from Kindred, who always used to say that more companies die indigestion than starvation. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very wary of that. And we hopefully get some form of keto diet when it comes to capital consumption. We need partners who are more open to the next generation of what a family building process is and innovate with us on a range of products and services that allow us to solve the problems that we want to solve. And that can come from geographical expansion where we expand to new markets. That can come from product innovation where we expand to other verticals. So essentially we need someone to partner with us in a very similar way, how Beasley and Chaucer and Atrium partnered with us on the first product to power up the next generation of products because we really want to go and try to cover all the blind spots of what a family building look like. We absolutely do need people at scale, and it's sort of a great place to be when you have a complex problem that has a measurable human impact, because that'll allow you to tap into a talent pool that is sometimes not available, and we're at the intersection of the two. So I think a combination of innovative partners that understand new risk models and want to apply them in the real world for a measurable impact, and access to a talent pool, probably top of our list. Well, I won't be the only one who finds your story and the story of Guy very inspiring. And I'm absolutely certain that you will flush out from that people who would be interested in getting hold of you. How do they get hold of you and, and how should they get hold of you? Best way to get hold of me is on uh, LinkedIn, I guess. 
I'm going to finish roughly where we started and ask you in not so many words, do you ever wish you were back at Goldman's now? Because I'm sure that you have, like any founder, your moments uh, where you wonder what you got into, but, but I can't help thinking that actually you're really enjoying yourself. You know that what you're doing is something profoundly important and it must reflect in the way that you see your job. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It was always a funny story that, um, you know, the day, the day we moved to our current office two years ago, my colleague Lucy and I took an Uber X to move everything. It wasn't even Uber X out. We just set everything in a Toyota Prius. We sat in it and we, we moved offices. And days like that, you wonder, what have you done to yourself? And some other days, the same Lucy sends a message on Slack saying that a guy a member is pregnant. And that brings it all together. And that, and that gives you a good perspective of what you're doing and why. I think um, it sounds cheesy, but I always say that to be able to pursue profit in a scalable and a meaningful way as we are, whilst being the difference maker for some families between having the child or not, is an incredible privilege. I don't claim to have... Like I've stumbled on this by accident, but I think that it's a privilege that stems to everything that we do in Gaia that I'm personally very grateful for because we're, we're pursuing something for profit in a very meaningful and scalable way. We took venture money we need to achieve venture returns, but it's a fantastic place in life to be able to do that while you're actually creating a measurable impact on actual lives. And I think it, it's such a privilege that I don't know how would I ever have regrets, like however hard the journey is. No, no, it's been an absolute privilege. I enjoyed meeting you two or three years ago. I applaud everything you've achieved. I wish you luck in the future. And please come back in a few years' time and tell us how you're getting on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the time early because I do think, by the way, that one of our early clinics that we piloted with came on the back of introduction that you've done two years ago. And you're one of the few people that sort of saw this from the onset that this is going to be meaningful and scalable. And uh, I'm also very grateful for our friendship. Thank you for proving me right. Cheers, Dada. Our autumn schedule of events is shaping up well with live events here in London at the end of the day on the 12th of October, 1st of November and 25th of November. Details of the events are on the website www.instec.co. To find out more about what we're doing at Instec and how to become a member, then please do contact any of us by email, hello at instec.co or myself, Matthew Grant or Robin Mertens by LinkedIn. Okay, that's it. We're done.